sooner or later in any discussion of suffering and of Satan and of the sovereignty of God and how all those things work together, uh, we have to wrestle with this question, okay? What is God's design in subjecting his people to the temptations of Satan? Isn't that what we've seen in Job? God is subjecting Job to Satan's temptations, okay, willingly. Um, and this is, not a, this is not an easy question to answer. Um, it's been kind of floating in the room as we've gone through our study of Job. And uh, what I want to do is try to unpack for you eight reasons why I think God subjects his people to the temptations of Satan. Okay, now I remember years ago. Where's Dave? Where's Dave Hubbard? I remember years ago, Dave. In your notes, you used to have a little section in some of your messages called "They Said It Better Than Me." You remember that? And uh, he would have a little section of quotes there from things he had come across, and I always appreciated how you put that. Um, I came across something this week where they said it way better than I could, and so rather than try to adapt it and, and sort of make it my own. I'm going to just dump my notes on the floor here. Um, I'm essentially going to give you an outline that I pulled out of a commentary, and I'm going to read you a number of quotes from it. Uh, This is so good, um, I don't even want to try to get in the way. Okay. Um, Now, the book that I'm referencing is by a guy named William Henry Green called The Argument of the Book of Job Unfolded. I don't know that I've ever recommended in a class that somebody go buy a commentary and read it, but you know what? You guys need to go buy this and read it, okay? It's, it's a little footnote in your notes, so you've got the bibliographic information here. Here's the cool thing. This was published um, 19, or 1874, I think, before modern-day copyright laws, which means there's no restrictions on, on this book. If you go to Google Books and type this in Google Books, you can download it for free. Okay, if you have a Kindle or a Sony reader or if you just get the little software to read it, if you have an iPad, um, you can do that. Also, you can, you can download it and print it out if you want because, like I said, it's not subject to copyright. Um, it's old. <laughs> it's a very old book. Uh, these guys, this is BiblioLife, BiblioLife... Um, I'm sure Gary's familiar with them. They take really old, good books and they republish them. And they're also very pricey, but uh, that's okay. Or bibliophiles, yeah. Um, so we're going we're to talk about that. He was, uh, Green was a Presbyterian pastor and was a preacher, I'm sorry, a, a professor at Princeton University in the mid to late 19th century. And um, after a short pastorate, um, he, he was professor of Hebrew at Princeton and uh, was even, um, he was the president of Princeton for a little while also. Uh, so that's who he is, and I'm going to lean, lean, like I said, heavily on his notes and his outline today as we, uh, we go through this. Okay, so what's the, what's the first reason that when we think about this question, God's design in subjecting his people to the temptations of Satan? This is the first thing Green said to drive believers to take refuge in God. Did you hear the psalm we read this morning, Psalm 46? Uh, God is our refuge and strength. Okay, let me just read you 
some, uh, some excerpts. You can just listen rather than turn to all of them. Second uh, Samuel 22, He, God, is a tower of deliverance and shows loving kindness to His anointed. Psalm 18, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. What, what are all those verses describing? What is God to the psalmist who's writing that? He's a safe place. He's a fortress. He's a tower. He's a refuge. Uh, a refuge would be where you would go in battle to be safe, right? Now, here's the problem. Most of us, um, if I can illustrate it like this, let's say this, this strong tower right here is the Lord. Okay, He is that refuge. He is the tower. And, and what God wants according to those verses, is for us to live here, okay? And, and just very, very practically, living in the tower of God, living to where we make God our refuge, means that we are trusting Him. We are relying on Him. We are um, obeying Him, even when things get hard. We are submitting to his plan in our life. And we live there. And, and, and here's, here's how you tell the test. And I wish I had time to unpack this, but we've got to keep moving to get through all eight of these. Here's, here's how you tell if you're living here. Do you have a quiet heart? Psalm 42, Psalm 43. Um, we talked about that. Gary preached one of them. I preached the other one recently. If you have a quiet heart, that's a wonderful litmus test that this is where you're living. Okay? But, but here's what most of us do. We erect these towers of our own making. Okay? We'll call it my tower. Now, now watch how this works. My tower uh, goes like this. Um, usually in one of two areas how this, this tower of safety, okay, uh, in one regard, I can build a tower that is built on others. On others. This is where I'm depending on others for my safety. Um, I depend on others. Um, I rely on them. I look to them for things like love and affirmation and encouragement, and I live here. I live with my well-being dependent on somebody else. Okay? That's one false tower that we build. Another false tower that we build is not built on others. It's built on self. And this is the person that must have control over everything in their life. Their place of refuge, their place of... um, their, their tower is in that place where they need control, they need to be in charge. And when things don't go right, their tower falls apart. Okay? You see this in what's called the fear of man. And you see this in worry and anxiety. Those are sort of the litmus tests there. Because what happens when my tower falls apart? I get all worried and bent out of shape about it. 
If I'm up here, I'm always constantly thinking about what that person or persons thinks about me. So there's these two dimensions of towers that I like to build, places where I like to live. Uh, When something goes wrong, I run to self or I run to others instead of running to God. Um, Listen to this. Uh, Why does God subject people to the temptations of Satan? Uh, Green says that they should drive us to take refuge in God. One grand aim of the earthly discipline of God's people in all its parts is to bring them to a closer acquaintance with Him and dependence upon Him. They are made to learn more and more of His fullness and to draw from Him larger and richer supplies. All the disclosures of His grace and of His unbounded resources make His Word are designed to bring them to Himself as to an overflowing fountain that they may drink the water of life freely. But in, Listen to this. But in order that they may be stimulated to avail themselves of these benefits and not perish in the sight of abundance, an inward appetite is necessary. I love that. What he's saying is our hearts don't have an appetite for this They have an appetite for this. So God's going to do something to create an appetite for Him. A hungering and thirsting after God. A craving for those blessings which He has to bestow. And the more imperative and urgent the sense of need which is awakened, the louder will be the cry for help. Isn't that true? And the more uh, importunate, that's an old word. Uh, the more important the application for it. The dire necessity which drives us to the fount of life is, in its results, an incalculable blessing. Did you hear that? What God brings into my life, even through the temptations of Satan that destroys this tower and drives me to the real tower according to Green, is an incalculable blessing, right? And the temptation of Satan, listen to this, the temptation of Satan which terrifies the soul out of all self-dependence and creature dependence and compels it to find refuge in an almighty Savior has accomplished a gracious end. Isn't that good? You need to get this. Okay? Number two. To train believers in the skills of Christian warfare. Please take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter six. And I'm just I'm just we're gonna do the the forty thousand foot flyover because Terry's gonna get here in just a couple weeks, okay? Uh so we won't go too deep here. But just just trying to get the 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 surface understanding of it here. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. It says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. What does that sound like? Right? How do we do that? Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. There it is. He puts the temptations of the devil in the context of 
of being strong in the Lord, what we're talking about. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. And then he's going to go through and he's going to unpack different elements of what it means to really grow in grace and be prepared for battle. Okay, and, and we won't get into all of that. But, but here's what I want you to see. Temptations motivate believers to do the things which grow them inwardly. Okay? The temptations of Satan motivate us to do the things that will grow us spiritually. We might call them the spiritual disciplines. We might call them running here and living here, because you can't live here when everything falls apart. When you realize you're not in control, there are some things you are not in control. You are not in control of a earthquake. You are not in control of a tsunami. You are not in control of any of that. And we are not in control here. People are sinful. People um, fail us. People don't come through for us sometimes. We are not in control. And when we realize that, that motivates in us to do the things that God says will grow us spiritually, the spiritual disciplines. Now listen again to, uh, to Green. He's my new favorite commentator. There is no teacher like necessity. Okay? If your child is drowning and you're not a very good swimmer, are you going to go take some swimming lessons? You're going to jump into the water and do everything you can to save that child, right? Because necessity is a wonderful teacher. And no training in the military art comparable to that enforced by actual hostilities, right? Nothing like learning how to be a soldier than throwing you in a battle with a real enemy. Now listen to this. What emphasis there is in that direction of the apostle, put on the full armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. It is not a time of peace and security, but of deadly conflict. It will not do to remain defenseless, and no armor that is defective or incomplete will answer in this terrible exigency. Some of you correct me if I'm pronouncing these old words wrong, okay? The weapons of our adversary will be swift to find it if there be one weak or unguarded spot from head to foot. Now listen to this. And what a school for practice in all the measures of offense and defense is this contest for life or death with such a foe. What he's saying is battling the temptations of Satan is one of the best places that we learn. Nothing is better adapted to call forth a manly vigor than the necessity of strenuous exertion. The struggles one must make, the endeavors one must put forth to resist temptation and to overcome the evil one, to react to the greatest, uh, react to the greatest advantage upon Christian character. The circumspection necessary to escape his insidious designs, the vigilance of the one who is obliged to be ever on his guard, the, the fixed determination of one who has set his face like a flint for the celestial city and who has resolved that he will be true to his God and Savior at all hazards, those tend to elevate rapidly the standard of the inner life. 
And these temptations exhibit grace as well as develop it. It can never be shown either to him or to others what a man is until he is tried. Do you want to know who you really are on the inside? First Peter says that God takes a person and tests their faith, tries it like gold, so that when they come out the other end, what does it do? It shows them that their faith is real. Do we want to know if our faith is real and strong? That's part of God's design. Number three. What is God's design in using, subjecting His people to the temptations of Satan? Number three is to increase a believer's hatred of sin. Increase a believer's hatred of sin. Uh, Romans chapter 7. I think we know it. We don't even need to turn there. The good that I want to do, I don't do. And in fact, I do the very thing that I, I don't want to do. Okay, Galatians 5, there is a flesh, there is a spirit, and they are at odds with one another. They, they are in conflict in my heart, right? You familiar with that? Part of, part of the reason that we don't succeed in our own, the battle in our own heart is we don't hate sin enough. In fact, if we're honest, there are sins that we love. Can we be that honest? There are things in the middle of it that we love, though we may hate them when we're done, though we may be shamed and guilty when, when at last it's over and we see or we're seeing things clearly again. In that moment, there are things that we love that are sinful. And one of God's designs in subjecting us to the temptations of Satan is to increase our hatred of sin itself. The temptations of Satan, if properly met, may be made an, a means of intensifying our hatred of sin. He who has barely escaped the fangs of a venomous reptile will ever after entertain a deeper abhorrence of it. You ever ran into a snake? Sin is in every temptation offered to our choice, but it need only be stripped of its disguises to present it in its repulsive and odious features and make us shrink with loathing from the contact. Listen to this. The very act of repelling it will cultivate a spiritual sensitiveness. It's going to make you spiritually sensitive which can less and less endure its hateful presence. Uh, Let me give you the Keith Palmer paraphrase. When we battle sin, it creates spiritual frustration that increases our hatred of the sin. That's part of God's design, is to increase our hatred of sin. Number four, got to keep going. To aid in believers' self-knowledge. What is God's design in subjecting His people to the temptations of Satan? Number four is to aid in a believer's 
self-knowledge. Can someone quote Proverbs 4.23 for me? I'll start it for you. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the springs of life, the issues of life. What's that saying? This is the part where you guys explain it. What's that saying? Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Okay, be careful what you allow into your heart. Very good. What we think about. At the end of the day, where does everything I do and everything I say and everything I think come from? Right here. Okay. God is very interested in our heart. In the Psalms it says, God desires truth in the innermost being. Uh, David cried out and said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Because that's the issue, right? Now, now here's the problem. Jeremiah says our hearts are deceitful and who can... So we are set up to misdiagnose our heart because of sin, right? I am prone to think more highly of my heart than is reality because of sin, right? Terry talked about that not too long ago. He was talking about pride and humility. Okay, so, so what, <laughs> what is God going to do about that? The germ of evil, germs of evil often lie undeveloped in the heart. And the man himself never suspects their existence until under the influence of some sudden or strong temptation they are brought to light. How is God going to show you the evil in our hearts that to us are undetected? so that we can do something about them. How's he going to do that? He's going to use, in part, the temptations of Satan to do that. Um, Wayne Mack, one of my professors, used to say, our hearts are like sponges, and you don't know what's in inside until they get squeezed. Um, John Owen, in uh, one of his letters, Greg, uh, he talks about the, the sinful passions within us are like a nest of vipers that lie undetected until the rod of affliction arouses them. That's a picture, isn't it? It was thus with Job. Green continues, God himself testified that there was none like him on the earth, a perfect and upright man that feared God and eschewed evil. And yet there was a leaven of corruption in his imperfectly sanctified nature of which he was not aware until by the terrible thrusts of Satan it was exposed. We haven't gotten there yet, but we're going to see that in Job's life. Underneath his really sincere and fervent piety, there was a taint of self-righteousness, which made him smart as he did under the reproaches of his friends, and which in the awful darkness of, the, of that mysterious dispensation in which he was shrouded led him even to the length of justifying himself rather than God. So what's God going to do? He's, he's going to use the temptations of Satan to do that. 
brought at last to himself and dismayed at the thought of what he had allowed himself to utter, he says, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Thus the design of God in this severe but salutary discipline was accomplished. Job had been led to know himself better than he did before, and he was humbled by this knowledge. Listen to this. The evil which before lurked within him unsuspected was detected and renounced. Do you want to know what's in your heart? Is it as hard as it is to see that? Is it not a good and gracious gift when God uses some circumstance, some temptation, some person, some issue to expose how sinful I really am because because I cannot grow to be more like Christ in that area till I know it's an issue. And Romans 8 says God is committed to the work of, of sanctifying us, to making us like Christ. He, he will not stop. He is relentless until we be just like His Son. And the temptations of Satan are one of the things that he does to do that. Sir. Well, I think that's a good question. Um, that, that's a plea um, to, to ask God for us to, to not be in situations where we would fall into sin. Um, I would read that alongside of 1 Corinthians 10 that says God's never going to allow something that's more than we're able to withstand, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Um, so I, th- I think that's the prayer that goes with that, Lord. Don't let me get in a situation that it's too much, that your grace would be sufficient. That's not saying that God's never going to allow that to happen. I think that, that's, that's a prayer to say, don't let it be too much. Yeah, that's how I would take that. Number five, what is God's design in subjecting uh, His people to the temptations of Satan? Number five, to provide occasions for grace to develop itself. To give occasions or provide occasions for grace to develop itself. Uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians Please, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I need a much bigger platform here. I've got too much stuff. That's not what I want. I'm sorry, chapter 12. You remember Paul's thorn in the flesh? Uh, We don't know what it was. Uh, He went to God three times, asked him to remove it. Uh, God said no. And Paul learned a very, very important truth about God's design in such things. That's what we're talking about, right? What's God's design? Chapter 12. Verse 9, he said to me, my grace is enough. It's sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell 
in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses and insults, with distresses and persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay, uh, we, we got we to gotta get this. We have such a weak, myopic, non-comprehensive view of grace. Okay, do you see the problem? Sin is too lovely. Grace is too small. So one of God's designs, as we saw, is to make sin as reprehensible and as ugly so that we hate it, that it's as ugly as it really is. His other design is to develop grace and help us to see the fullness of grace, the extent of grace, the, the, the comprehensive nature of grace. We get these little teeny tiny views of grace. And God is committed to expanding that to show us the magnitude of grace. And how did he do it in Paul's life? He put him in a situation with some trial. He appealed to God. God said, I'm not going to remove it. And Paul figured out, you know what? I'm going to see the nature of grace in bigger and grander and more glorious ways by going through this than if God were to remove it. Maybe to provide occasions for grace to develop itself in new forms. Maybe it's the loss of a job that shows you God's grace with finances. Maybe it's cancer that shows God's grace with health. Maybe it's death that shows grace in the midst of lost relationships. Maybe it's a difficult person in your life. And the grace God wants to develop in that that situation is that peace is not about having perfect people around you. Grace is in loving your enemies and seeing God's sufficiency in that. Maybe it's a natural disaster where we see the grace of the stability of life. But whatever it is, God is expanding and magnifying our view of grace. He's developing grace in areas that it lies underdeveloped. Now, however, God may be glorified and His law honored by the unhesitating obedience rendered by the countless ranks of those who do not understand from their own experience what temptation means it would appear as though there was something yet more signal and illustrious in that willing obedience which cost many a weary effort and many a painful struggle, in that loyalty to Jesus which is maintained not amidst the sympathy and applause of those who likewise adore His name, but in the face of derision, persecution, in that unfaltering submission, which can say not merely in the sunlight of the throne, but in the howlings of the pitiless tempest, Thy will be done. Listen to this. The post of danger is the post of honor, if it be well and bravely attended. And what he's talking about is the grace of God sustaining you when no one else around you is helping which is exactly where Job found himself. Number six, what's God's design in in subjecting believers to the temptations of Satan? Number six is to wean believers from a love of the world. To wean believers 
from a love of the world. Turn over to 1 John chapter 2, please. 1 John chapter 2. Verse 15. You guys know these verses. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and all its lusts, all its desires, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Why is love of the world so dangerous? It can be sinful, sure, if it's, if it's something overtly. Because it draws my affections from God to the stuff, and that's what makes it sinful. Okay, It draws my affections away from my Savior. Green talks about the clinging unduly to this vain world and having the affections too firmly rooted here. To counteract this dangerous tendency of love of the world, listen to this, measures must be employed to loosen this attachment by making the world seem less desirable and causing us to sigh for what is purer and better. The weariness induced by the incessant conflict between the flesh and the spirit often weighs heavily upon the soul. It is a hard thing to be forever crucifying our corrupt nature, to be always struggling against a power which we find impossible to subdue, endeavoring to keep down principles and propensities which strive in vain to eradicate or extinguish, and never able with safety to relax our vigilance or to desist from effort. Feel like that? We just can't let our guard down, can we? Listen to this. And it is disheartening to find how slow is our progress toward the completed conquest. We don't make progress as quickly as we would like, right? Even if we advance at all. How often the ground which we seem to have won is wrestled from us and foes that we thought were slain rise again to their feet as powerful as before. All this, though it should not lead us to abandon the fight while the enemy is still in the field, would make the news of victory more welcome. It gives sweetness to the thought of a world where there shall be no more sin and into which temptation cannot enter, where inbred lusts and native corruption shall be removed forever and Satan shall at length have ceased to annoy You get frustrated in the battle for sin, the relentless, battleful sin. You can never put your guard down. We can never let up. We can never take a break. And the weariness of saying one more day of fighting this horrible enemy within me makes heaven all the more attractive. We need to read guys like this. We need to think like this. We need to minister like this. How am I doing? Number seven. To enhance a believer's future glory in heaven. See, that got him riled up. Now he's going to talk about heaven. Um, one of the things that struck me, it was one of those things, I don't know if, you know, if, if you've ever taught something 
a lesson maybe in Sunday school or Awana and you write down notes. I mean, I write all sorts of notes down. And, and, um, and then every now and then, God puts something in your head in the midst of ministering. And I was in the middle of doing this, this graveside deal. And, and Chris Tomlin saying that was bad. I mean, it was good, but it was bad. Um, that's the song, Amazing Grace, that has the chorus, My Chains Are Gone, I've Been Set Free. Yes, Chris Tomlin wrote the chorus. And um, listen to that, and, and, and some, something in there, maybe it was a line or whatever, I, I had this thought. Um, my grandfather's faith is sight now. He can see it. He's not just hoping and trusting and relying He's there. And I think one of the reasons that we love the world too much, uh, we love ourselves too much, we get involved in things, we not bad things, but they don't matter eternally, is that heaven, heaven is not something we think about. Heaven is not something that we've developed biblically. I mean, if you're, if you're still thinking clouds and harps and wings, you're not remotely there. Um, he sees Jesus now. And the battle of sin is done. The suffering is done. Here's where green goes. Here's his premise, and, and I, I don't have time to develop it now, but I want you to think about it. I had to talk to our resident theologian, that, that's Terry. I had to talk to him about this because I, I wanted to make sure this was an orthodox thought. Here's what Green is going to say. When we fight temptation in this life, and we resist it, and we grow, that increases our faculties to enjoy the wonders of heaven when we get there. Okay? I'm going to read this and you tell me what you think, okay? If the reward... Now, he's talking about a believer's reward someday in heaven, right? We know there's rewards, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 4. If the reward that believers get in heaven, though wholly a gift of grace, listen to this, is in proportion to the service done or the fidelity shown for duty resolutely performed in the face of temptations of the evil one, will surely receive a marked and signal acknowledgement. So what he's saying is, if we resist Satan and succeed, that's going to be rewarded someday in heaven. Okay, so far so good. Now listen to what he says. The training given to the spiritual faculties in the exercises of the Christian warfare, the development and expansion thence resulting in the powers of the soul, Listen to that. Here's the part I want you to hear. Those things bear directly on our capacity for bliss and holiness in heaven. Did you get that? This took me like six times to read before I understood it, okay? Let me, again, let me give you the Keith Palmer version. God does something in our souls when we resist Satan successfully. What happens, the growth that happens in our souls when we resist Satan in this life makes us better able, gives us a greater capacity to enjoy the blessings of heaven when we get there. 
So he's equating the reward in heaven, not with a crown, he's equating the, the reward in heaven with increased enjoyment in being able to enjoy all the things that God has for us there. I'll let you think about that, because I thought it's not explicit in Scripture, but it certainly is intriguing. Get one question, and then we've got we to gotta wrap it up here. We've got one more point. He does talk about the crown. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have an exegetical reason for his... Okay, well, that's good. That's worth looking into. Last thing. Last thing. To expand and magnify the glory of divine grace. To expand and magnify the glory of divine grace. We will see this when we get to chapter 39 in Job. Okay? Let's just summarize Mr. Green for now. Talking about Satan, the decrees with which he, Satan, would frustrate and embrace himself and all his hateful deeds end up as agencies cooperating to their fulfillment. I'll say it more plainly. With all his hatred of God and spite against his people, Satan, he cannot emancipate himself from that sovereign control which binds him to God's service. In all his blasphemous designs, he is, in spite of himself, doing the work of God. In his rebellious efforts to dethrone the Most High, he is actually paying him submissive homage. In moving heaven and earth to accomplish the perdition of those whom Christ has ransomed, he is actually fitting them for glory. Fiend as he is, full of bitterness and malignity and intent on every form of mischief, he is constrained to be that which he most abhors and is furthest from his intentions and desires, helpful and auxiliary to the designs of grace. What is he saying? Satan cannot by any means harm the feeblest of God's saints who stand firm against him in the name of the Lord. We have on the armor with which divine grace has furnished him and use aright the weapons which he has supplied and in humble dependence upon his Lord abides faithful at his post. He is invincible. And the boastful foe who came upon him ready to swallow him up shall be driven back in shame and confusion, and Green concludes, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. At the end of the day, God takes... I'll give you an example. What was, in Satan's mind, his greatest accomplishment? Putting Jesus on the cross. And what is, what is the pinnacle of the glory of divine grace? That's it. Do you see how he takes Satan's best effort, turns it on his head? I've got to read this again because it's so good. What does he say? He says, uh, I said, he said it better than me. Um, in all his blasphemous designs, he is, in spite of himself, doing the work of God. What he means for evil, God means for good.
Um, Mm. Yeah, I don't know about you. I read this, and I don't have a category in my head for most of this, because my heart is so far from thinking as biblically saturated as this man is. Um, but I think what he says is true to Scripture. I think it's well said, and it is motivating gold for us to read and to be encouraged by. Um, God has a particular design for the good of his people, even in using sin, even in using temptation, even in using the world, and even using the temptations of Satan. And those are certainly not exhaustive, but those are eight of the things that Scripture would call our attention to, uh, to do that. Let's pray.